Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 7. Isaiah, like we said, is a, a prophet of Judah. Is a, a prophet of Judah, and he is prophesying to Judah the coming destruction because of their turning away from the covenant. They're turning towards uh, the gods of the nations, even embracing the sacrifice of their own children to those gods. So Isaiah gives us introduction in, in chapter one. We see the themes that will develop through the whole book coming alive there. God's a father. He loves his people. He's, he's drawn them to be his nations. And if they will turn away from their idols, he will make them white as snow. Now, we picked that up again last week in chapter 5, where he declares that he is the vine dresser. And Israel is the vine. They're the vineyard, that is. And he has done nothing but show them grace. He's cleared the land. He's chosen them to be his people. He's planted them. He put a hedge around them. And yet, they've done nothing but give him wild, which means rotten fruit. Now, after introducing the situation in those first five chapters, Isaiah now in chapter 6 famously records his call to be a prophet which came through an incredible vision that he has of the throne room of God. All true prophets have had a life-transforming encounter with God's holiness, where they are filled with the Holy Spirit at the throne room of God and then sent back into the world to his people to be God's mouthpiece. Now, in this amazing vision of Isaiah that we're going to delve into this morning, we also have a glimpse of how we as God's people should approach God in worship. What, what should our approach be on Sunday morning when we get here? Isaiah 6, verse 1 to 7, if you'll just read with me. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs, From the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Let's pray for our time this morning. Oh God, we thank you for these glimpses of heavenly worship. God, what a picture of what eternity will be. Lord, were we worship you on earth 
for all eternity and enjoy you proclaiming your holiness. God, and we can look at that and long for those glimpses of your holiness here in our worship. God, our approach should be the same. Lord, we want to know your holiness, your purity, your goodness, Father, that leads us to be a people that launches in worship. And when that happens, you receive glory, O Lord, but we receive the joy of drawing close to you. Father, take your word now and penetrate our hearts and our minds with it. God, transform us, change us, make us more like our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to ask you a question. Where does your, where does your image of good worship come from? All right, we all have an image of what good worship is. Where did yours come from? Some say, well, tradition. And we certainly draw on an amazing Reformed Presbyterian tradition here, don't we? And there's a lot of truth in that. Others say, well, my experience, whatever stirs my heart. Yes, as long as those experiences are in line with truth and the Word of God. Others say, well, I, I get it from the regulative principle of worship, which means God tells us in the Word how he wants to be worshiped. Yes, that's true. We don't have UFC fighting in the church because the regulative principle doesn't describe that in Scripture. But that primarily gives the elements of worship like prayer, reading of the Word. My friends, the question I'm asking is, how should we approach God in worship when we get together? One of the ways that we learn the true nature of something it's to go to the source, isn't it? Or to go to the original, right? So when we ask, how should we approach God in worship? We can look to the pictures of heavenly worship in the scriptures and ask, how do men and angels approach God in heaven? And surely that should be our approach here as we gain understanding as God's people. Isaiah 6, Isaiah is being called as a prophet in a vision. And like several other places in Scripture, we have a glimpse of the throne room of God and how we should approach God in worship. Isaiah finds himself surrounded by angels who are before the throne room, the king. They're covering their eyes in reverence and holding their feet with their wings in reverence, and their proclamation is one of praise, holy, 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 which means infinite holy are you, O God. Isaiah has one response, humility, repentance before an infinitely holy God. Why? Because in the light of God's holiness, he sees how unclean and unworthy to serve God and to be a prophet he really is. It's in the light of God's holiness that we see our own heart for what it is in our own need. Yet it is there that God then comes to him in his humility and through his grace declares him guiltless and his sins atoned for. Hallelujah! 
God's designs of worship in heaven and earth are the same. I'm going to say that again. God's designs in heaven and earth for worship are the same. Our Sabbath day of worship is the beginning. It's a foretaste of the blessings of eternity. It is the same in purpose, but not in power or degree, because there's no sin in heaven. It's different in elements, isn't it? But the same in purpose. In heaven, they see God's holiness and grace face to face by sight. We see the glory of God by faith as he is revealed through his word and his spirit when we come together and worship. So the main idea this morning is God's holiness has got to be the heart of our worship. When we get together... When you're on your knees or alone in your private closet, when you're doing your family worship. Now, there's several things we want to see about this text. And first, let's just start off with his vision. The vision that he has, verses 2 to 3. If you look there in your Bible, I'll read it once more. Above him, in the year of the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Uzziah was the king of Judah that rediscovered the law. He brought revival to a dead country that had lost the law. They went around and he tore down the idols, the high places. He increased the boundaries of the country back to their original boundaries. Agriculture was flourishing under his leadership. And so he was a very famous king. And on Isaiah's vision, he said, this happened the year that Isaiah or that Uzziah died, probably around 739 B.C. Okay, what was the vision? Well, he tells us, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. Now stop. How? Rusty, how? Because Scripture teaches us that no man or woman can see God and his glory and live. And so how can he do this? 1 Timothy 16, 616, to whom no one can see. Well, he tells us. It was a vision, a vision of the king's throne room where God is sitting on the throne, the heavenly council. Now notice how he describes God there. He's high and lifted up. The, the height of something shows its superiority. And so in traditional churches, you would have high pulpits like these two. And the reason is to say that the Word of God is elevated and our lives are in submission to it. We live under the authority of God's Word. And so when he sees the king sitting high and lifted up, what he's saying is all angels and all men are under the authority of this king. Well, he sees even more than that. The train of the robe, his robe filled the temple. The train, meaning the long ends of the king's robe, symbolized his authority and his glory. And so what he's saying is his glory, the greatness of who he is, filled the entire temple. God is enthroned in robes of glory and light. And it fills the whole place. Now God's not alone. Look at verse 2 with me in your Bibles. Above him stood seraphim. 
Each had six wings. With the two, he covered his face. Two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. My friends, this is the divine counsel. We need to ask, what are angels? Because we see so many TV shows and people die and they become angels and they're cute and they're fuzzy. But what are angels? Well, Hebrews 1.14 says, they are ministering spirits who worship while they wait to serve God. Revelation 19.10 says they are fellow servants serving under the king as part of the same kingdom that we are in. Theirs is the upper part of the family of God ministering and serving him around his throne, his creation. We serve him as his children created in his image to know and glorify and enjoy him here on this earth. Both part of the kingdom of God. Now, these particular angels are given a name, seraphim, which means burning ones. It's the only Old Testament passage to mention them. And he doesn't tell us how many. So we have to look in other places to get a bigger picture. Revelation 5.11, John says, There are myriads and myriads, which literally means millions, surrounding God's throne. And they are covering their face and their feet, not because of their sin, not because there's some shame or guilt, but because they are standing in the white, hot presence of God's glory and holiness. And not even his creation, the angels, can see God, even in their sinless condition. Now, Let's just stop and ask a question. What distinguishes a true and false prophet in the Old Testament? Well, it was their calling. The true prophets were brought into the counsel of the Lord. They had a vision of God and His holiness. They saw the glory of the Lord, and then they were sent back into the world. Why do we need prophets in the Old Testament? Well, Deuteronomy 18, God's people were terrified after their experience of hearing him and seeing his glory when he gave the law. And this is what they say to him. Verse 16 of Deuteronomy 18. Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest we die. In other words, they see part of the glory of God and they hear his voice and they say, no more. We can't do that anymore. And God steps in and says, you're right. I'll raise up prophets for you, people like Moses, and I will put my word in their mouth and they shall speak all that I command to you. So the prophets like Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they were all brought into the counsel of God and they were sent back, transformed to speak words of faithfulness to his people. Now, Deuteronomy 18 talks about the role of a prophet, but it also talks about one prophet who is to come. It's a promise. It's an ultimate fulfillment of what they were asking for. Not too long after Isaiah, God would permanently answer the request of Israel. He would send one prophet, the prophet, not a man who was given a vision, but the Son of God from his very throne. Not someone who needed to come up, 
but someone who had been with God forever. And this one would come and reveal God's glory to us and to once and for all deal with our sins so that we could know God, so that we could hear God, not through a prophet, but through the Holy Spirit and his word now dwelling in us. So hallelujah, the prophet has come. That's when you should say amen. Let's go to point two. Let's move from the prophet's vision to the prophet's repentance. What does he do then? How does he respond? Verses 3 to 5, if you're looking in your Bibles with me. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, and we've read it this morning, do you remember what he said? Your will be done on earth as it is in... Yeah. How many times have you read that? Well, part of what that means is The worship that we see in heaven is the will of God for the worship that we have here in the church. Verse 3, the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the throne of holiness. This is not a random repetition. He's not saying one plus one plus one. He's saying perfection times perfection times perfection. It's the only word used three times to describe God. And it means, God, you are infinitely holy. And it is this holiness that is all the attention, the admiration, and the constant praise of the myriads of angels who are there in his presence. Now, what does holiness mean? When you say holiness, Rusty, what does that mean? Well, holiness is not one thing. It is all the attributes of God are whole. They're full of perfection. They're like an eternal cup that keeps going on and on, and you can't add one more drop to them because they're so full. They're whole. So his mercy, his love, his grace, his kindness, and his justice are perfect. All of his attributes, they're lacking nothing. There's nothing to be added to them. So, okay, why is, you're telling me holiness is so important to our worship. Why? Well, the second thing the angels say, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I'm going to slow down here. We only praise attributes when they are full of goodness. We only praise attributes when they are full of goodness and holiness. Attributes of a leader, such as strength, power, control, sovereignty, are not praised in the likes of Hitler or Stalin. They had all those things, but we don't praise them for them because they are not connected to goodness and to holiness or moral goodness. Make sense? We only praise attributes like strength when they are connected and done 
in goodness and holiness. So we say, what a great king. He or she, queen, uses their strength to bring about peace on earth. What an incredible coach. She uses her power to love the athletes well. We don't say, what a great coach. He uses his power to humiliate his players. We only praise attributes when they are full of goodness and holy. Okay, come back to God. God's holiness fills up all of his actions and his attributes with goodness. You got to get that. Therefore, everything he does is good, and everything he is is good, and it is controlled by his goodness, and he is worthy of praise. And so, therefore, we can say God is sovereign. Now, that doesn't mean he's good or bad or worthy of praise, but we say he is sovereign, and we know he's holy in his sovereignness, which means everything he does in his control and his sovereignty is lived out in goodness, and therefore worthy of our praise and worthy. And that's the reason the angels cry out, all the earth is full of his glory, which means everything that God does, all of his attributes, is also connected to his holiness and done in holiness. And therefore, it's right and it's good and praiseworthy. So they say, holy, holy, holy. You're full of infinite holy. And the world declares and sees and experiences your glory, your attributes, your actions lived out in your holiness. Now, when anyone comes face to face with the holiness and perfections of God, there's always one response. Verses 4 and 5, if you look in your Bibles with me. The foundations of the throne shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the kings of, king of hosts. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in tongues of angels, he's not talking about a prophetic tongue or language. He's talking about what Isaiah is seeing here. If I speak with incredible power. Angelic power. Angelic praise was powerful, verbally shaking the foundations of the throne. Jennifer and I went through 2,000 earthquakes when we lived in New Zealand. And some of them were powerful. And our very first one, it was like you were in poltergeist. The bed and the whole house was just shaking. You could not stand up. You could not move as everything was shaking. And the roar that you heard got louder and louder and louder until it was almost deafening. Now that's a little bit of what's being described here. And notice the response. The response to so many in our city was they left. <laughs> they decided they were going to go to Australia and live. Notice his response. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of hosts. He knows he's ruined. He's lost. He gives us two reasons. First, he's not clean. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. 
So when faced with the minions of angels singing and praising with adoration, he is face to face with the sin of his own heart, which has come out of his mouth. And he's saying, unlike the seraphim whose words are pure and holy, mine are full of sin. He sees it. And the second reason he says he's undone is because he's seen the king. He's seen God. Everything in Old Testament worship says man is unclean. Stay away from the presence of God. Everything in the New Testament says Christ has come. Draw close. But now in this vision, he is face to face with the glory of God. And the result is utter humility as he sees his sin, his brokenness, and it's revealed in the light of God's holiness. So what we see here is a humility that leads to repentance. My friends, true humility comes in beholding the holiness of God in worship. We go from believing that we are gods to knowing that we are unclean before a holy God. Worship that is focused on the perfect holiness of God strips us of all of our pride and reveals our great need of humility. My first summer when I was in seminary in St. Louis, I needed work. And so I asked someone, they said, call David. He works at this mega church. So I called David, and he said, well, why don't you come interview? And I walked in, and there was a man who could barely walk in his 60s, struck with Parkinson's, trembling. And when he interviewed me, and he hired me. And I worked for him painting and cleaning all summer. And I began to hear from others about this man's life. He had been a lawyer in Nashville. He had represented people like Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Elvis. He owned a giant law firm, a trucking firm. He was a law professor at Vandy. In the world's eyes, he had arrived. And then he was converted, and he came to know Christ. And he told me this, the only thing he ever said. He said, God took it all, but left me with just enough to come to seminary, to pay the bills. And what was remarkable is he never spoke of his money, his former life, his famous clients, although he did have one or two Elvis stories, which are pretty cool, and I can tell you afterwards. He just spoke about his love of worship. His humility didn't come with being consumed with everything he had given up for God. How lowly he lived. But rather, from his worship, which focused on the holy attributes of who God was. Worship destroys our pride and brings humility because it gives us a vision that God is all-powerful, glorious, satisfying, loving, and this is the God that loves me. Last few thoughts before we move on. This is his call for us, to be holy because I am holy. Now, what does that mean? When the heart and life are conformed to the will of God, that's holiness. When our heart and our life are conformed to the will of God, so that his love, his goodness, his mercy, his kindness, his, these things become our will and control how we act. Now, where does that transformation happen? How does that happen? 
worship. Worship. Your life and your heart will be molded into the image of God through the power of the Spirit in worship. Private, family, and corporate. Worship through word and spirit is where we behold the glory of Jesus Christ and our lives are transformed, 2 Corinthians 3. So the more that our lives are filled with worship, focusing on the attributes of who God is, the more the Holy Spirit changes us into that. Point three, and we'll close with this. That's what happens here. Let's move from the prophet's vision, his repentance, to how he's made clean. God deals with the problem. Verses 6 and 7. Look in your Bibles with me. Then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs of the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. One of the seraphim, he goes to the altar and he takes a hot coal. He brings it and he touches what Isaiah said was polluted. His mouth. Why? Well, he knows his sin, and especially that of his mouth, has disqualified him from being a prophet. And unless God cleanses him, he cannot. This coal represents cleansing and forgiveness because it comes from the altar. The coal doesn't hurt him, it heals him. Now, notice what it does. Your guilt has been taken away and your sin atoned for. God takes away his sin. We might ask, okay, Rusty, how can a coal heal? (laughs) How can a coal atone for sin? Well, it can't. A coal can't take away sin. That's true. But neither can a sheep, neither can doves, neither can a goat, neither can a grain offering in the Old Testament. That's just the point. God is the one that forgives, and there is nothing on earth that can truly atone for or take away our sin. God himself must provide a sacrifice to take it away. It must come from him, come from his throne room. The reason that Jesus' death, his blood, can make atonement, that is, take away the sin of us, is because of the value of the sacrifice. On the cross hung infinite holiness. Holy, holy, holy. The very one the angels were singing about is the one who was hanging on the cross as a substitute for the great sin in my life. Years ago, there was a family that committed a great treason against a king. And the law said that if you committed treason against the king, that you must die. But the king and his family were merciful, and they actually knew this family that had committed treason. And so the king got together with his family, and he said, we need to choose mercy on them. What can we do? And they had a council. And they said, you know, the only thing that will save them is if they have royal blood in them. So the son of the king married the daughter of the family. And suddenly, her blood became royal blood. It became valuable blood, and therefore worth the blood of the entire family. They were married, 
and her blood became royal. Soon she was executed, and she satisfied the guilt for the whole family. Her death was equivalent to the death of the whole family because of her value, who she was. Christ is God's only sacrifice for sin. From his throne, the fire from his altar, filled up with his holiness to be his love and his grace to the world, that whoever repents and believes in him will be cleansed, will be atoned for. And at the heart of our worship, every time we get together to worship, every time you worship as a family or as an individual, must be a deep love for God's holiness, who he is, that every attribute and action he has is filled up with goodness for us. And as we do that, not only is he glorified, but our lives are transformed from glory to glory into his image. Amen? Father, we just praise you right now. And I know I've just opened a fire hydrant here and given a lot. But I pray your Holy Spirit would work powerfully through the preaching of your word. And that when we leave here, and we come back on another Sunday, our focus wouldn't be on, do I like the music? Or um, do I like the way they do the Lord's Supper? Or do I like the coat the minister's wearing? Or whatever the things could be. Lord, I pray that our focus would be firmly upon who our God is. His holiness, that means all of his goodness and his attributes and everything that he does is filled up with that goodness for me. And for his glory, Lord, and we'd be a worshiping church. And as we worship, lastly, I pray that we would know incredible satisfaction and joy as we draw close to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.